Welcome to my so-called opera life, a podcast for opera singers by opera singers, where we work to connect, inform, empower, and inspire musicians at all levels and stages of their career. Each episode, we'll explore a piece of the never-ending puzzle of the so-called opera life, humble brags and therapeutic complaints, as well as practical information about how this business works. Each piece helping you on your journey towards success, which we believe should really mean happiness. I'm Marcel. And I'm Elise. And we're two sopranos trying to live our best so-called opera lives. On today's episode, we are talking with Zach Finkelstein. Um, he is a tenor in the opera business, of course, but also is really making the mark right now as a journalist on his blog, The Middle Class Artist, where he is working to just share a lot of information about what is happening in the opera world in regards to the payment of artists and what companies are stepping up to the plate and then which companies are not doing so well. He's not only a singer, but a data analyst, so he has his other job as a consultant doing that and he's excellent at doing research so his articles are very informative and very professional right and eye-opening i kind of love you know his his articles are like so serious and his voice as a as a reporter is very serious and like very mathematical and to the point and he's just lovely he's a lovely human (laughs) he is not that serious he writes really well he he's very informed but he's like goofy. I know, and I love it. It's the best. <laughs> we really had a great time talking to him, and we think you're going to really enjoy his conversation about his experience as a singer and how he sees the future of opera going. So enjoy. So nice to talk to you in person. We've been reading yeah. your articles since... The first Before one. we started this podcast, yeah. Wow, oh, awesome. One of Thank our, you. yeah, one of our um, practice episodes was your, um, was it his first? Yeah, your first post? one, your living wage year one post was our one of our practice episodes. Yeah. Oh, nice. Training nice. <laughs> wheels, I like it. Yeah, that was, that was fun. That was back when I could write about like the fun things like, oh, application fees, am I right? <laughs> I right? know, like. <laughs> Oh my God, the world's imploding. 11 stories a day. How do I process this information? I was like, laughing when you were when you wrote your comment in the one post, the COVID, the first big COVID post, I think, mm-hmm. um, where you were like, at this point, artist application fees seem quaint. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my wife thought it was funny. But I mean, it, it really is like, it's like a whole new world. Like, it's, I mean, the things I thought were important a month ago are irrelevant. And the things I didn't think about a month ago are now like, that's all I think about. Right. So like, what, like what? Give us an example of that. Um, the application like, fees. I'm yeah. Sorry. So, so, so there's, there's like, you know, my, the whole reason I started this blog kind of, I mean, very ironically was, I was like, you know, I have a dual career and I think it's a good way to go, you know, just in case anything happens. And like, that was like nine months ago. And I was like, and like two people were listening and like, you know, it was, yeah, my passion is to talk about like how to file your taxes and like doing like a hundred hours of research on young artist programs. Like that's the stuff I really enjoy, but the stuff that I think is like absolutely necessary right now, which is like the total shit show of the Met and, um, you know, basically how no one's paying, or a lot of big institutions are not paying their artists. Like, I think that is like the most important story that's not being covered right now Mm -hmm. and how like small companies are stepping up. 
And like, I kind of want to get off this beat, but like nobody else is talking about it. And it's like super frustrating because, you know, I'll have like a pretty, you know, like it's been a pretty big week for the blog or pretty big month. Like, I mean, we, I got like a hundred thousand hits, which is like, great. Like that's for a cost music blog. Like that's pretty serious. But then like the New York times will post some like yada yada. Like, I'm so sad that I can't go to the opera anymore. And I have to watch turn dot my jammies. Right. And like, you know, that'll probably get like 800,000 hits and everyone, every donor reads that. And like, I'm not turning into like a personal thing. It's just, it's so frustrating having what I, what is a platform, but it's just like compared to the other people that are yelling, like their hair's on fire. It's just like, not, I feel like it's just not doing anything, but I'm trying. So. Yeah. Well, on this end, I think like in terms of the artists, we all see your blog. And if this gets us with enough fire under our ass to maybe have a little more courage to start working on some workers' rights stuff for when this is all over, that's, that's really impactful. Thanks. I do feel that like it is a bit of a whole new world right now, just for in a, in a positive way, you know, the amount of solidarity in the musician community right now is incredible. You know, we're not people that it's not singers that sing at the Met and like, you know, I'm waiting in the wings and I'll get you. It's (laughs) right now. It's like singers who used to sing at the Met and like everybody else, there's no more competition. We're all like, Oh my God. You know, like you'll have people at the Met be like, Oh my God, like how do I file unemployment? And like someone from, you know, someone from California will be like, Oh, well, here's like a helpful link. And they'll be like, Oh, great. Thank you. Like everyone is in the same boat right now. And it's like, on the one hand, it's just a total dumpster fire, but on the other hand, it's very like liberating and gives me hope that when this is all over and all the big houses come back and pretend nothing happened and pass you over the contracts and say like sign away all your risks that maybe some of the people at the top will like not sign it immediately maybe they'll like go for coffee and think about it and then sign it but like maybe it'll take like an hour instead of like five minutes i don't I know. know i mean i'm just hoping that people will start thinking about the like catastrophic risk involved of signing these contracts especially yeah. i i think that there's been like this slow burn of of singers coming together we're like right now there's a singers coalition mis- uh, meeting going on that we I love those guys <laughs> uh, yeah and cool. um it's been this little slow burn of of singers wanting to come together and wanting to be like you said like everybody that's now singing at the Met is like part of that too. Like yeah. for the most part, all the old singers are not part of it, but that's another story. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's true. Yeah. It's good that this, that's the one silver lining I feel like in this is that hopefully it's a catalyst for singers to like come together and learn how to, how to create change from that. Totally. Right? I think we're all, usually we're all afraid for our jobs and right now, none of us have jobs. <laughs> I know it's very liberating. We're like, it's leveled the playing field. And now we're just like, yeah. well, fuck it. I've got nothing yeah. to risk anyway right now. Exactly. It's it, like the image I have before is just like all the nervous singers in the hallway at NOLA. And the image I have now is just like, you know, us like out on the fields of gold, like holding hands and solidarity, like walking into the flames. And it's like, we'll get through this together. And it's very, it's very inspiring, actually. On, a, on the one positive note that I'm going to say on this entire call. <laughs> <laughs> let's back up for a minute and let's um, just have like a brief background of your singing career and also sure. how your dual career, when did that start within your singing? Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad to give my singing career postmortem. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So I had I had a very odd start. So I basically chickened out of going to music school in my undergrad. I did an amazing kind of, uh, you know, Boston University Tanguins do when I was 16. And I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe you can do this for a living. And like, this is a national treasure. And I'm so excited. And I'm so inspired. And then I basically like was like, OK, well, I need to go get a job. So I went into politics and economics and undergrad, which I actually enjoyed for the most part and like gave me a lot of the research skills you're seeing me use now. And, uh, and I sang a little on the side. I took a voice lesson here and there. I actually sang in like Julian Wachner's first chamber choir randomly from oh. like Trinity Wall Street. Cool. And we reconnected like 14 years later and he's like, tell this story. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, he's a great guy. But, um, but yeah, so I did that for a while. Um, and then I went directly from there into at the University of Chicago for like an international politics and economics degree. And I basically quit after a semester of like constant panic attacks when I was like, what am I doing here? This is not what I want to do. Help. Um, and I was like, why am I spending any money to do this? Um, so then I went back to Montreal and got lots of behavioral cognitive, cognitive behavioral therapy and rebuilt. <laughs> and then um, I got a job as a, um, an editor in a nonprofit. And then that turned into um, like a pretty serious consulting job in Toronto, they call it Bay Street, which is like the mini Wall Street, but really it's just like where all the business happens and, you know, the, the, the smaller version of where all the business happens in Canada. Sure. Um, and so I worked there for a while and um, they just like completely threw me in the deep end. I was working as a, a research analyst to start, you know, working on political campaigns in Canada, um, working for like nonprofits, you know, different companies and just trying to like basically learn everything on the job there that I'm using to tell these stories right now. And after a few years of that, uh, my old roommate from college, who is a singer songwriter um, in the like, <laughs> I don't want to use the word Margaritaville, but he spent a lot of time in Sarasota, Florida. So I feel like that's appropriate. <laughs> now he lives in Denver <laughs> and he has a lot of canceled wedding gigs. I'm sorry, Ben. But, but yeah, so he came back and he was like, hey man, I'm making an album. Do you want to sing a uh, backup on it? And I hadn't, you know, I hadn't sung in years. Mm. And I was like, oh man, this is cool. And so I decided with all my, you know, pennies saved and my, my girlfriend, soon to be wife was on board in 2009. I quit my job as a research manager at the time. I got promoted in a big raise and he's like, sorry to lose you, son. And, um, but we left on like really good terms, which is came important later. I didn't burn any bridges. And so I, you know, I started taking community lessons and I was like, I want to do a master's. And my teacher's like, you literally don't know how to sing. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I do. And he's like, you know, two songs and you can't can't sing in German yet. And I was like, I'm doing it anyways. So I applied to an artist diploma at the Royal Conservatory of Toronto and basically an undergrad at the University of Toronto, understanding that like there was an amazing teacher there I wanted to study with, but I think I was like 24 at the time. And I was like, man, I do not want to do another undergrad. And I only applied to Toronto because my wife had a job. I wasn't like, you know, I'm going to go somewhere for two, one to three years and make $18,000 a year and uproot yeah. my wife's life. And like, maybe they'll give me a $3,000 contract at the end of it. I was like, that sounds kind of stupid. I'm not going to do that. So yeah, I went, I basically got into both with scholarship and I got a full scholarship to the Royal Conservatory, right. even though I only knew six songs. I mean, it was total tenor privilege. They're like, uh, okay. I, know. <laughs> you, like, <laughs> I know, I know. They're like, you literally don't know how to sing. I was like, I know, I know. Isn't it wild that I'm here? <laughs> 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 why am I here you know I basically applied like my business and research skills which you may have seen lately um to this and I was like oh this is my new thing and then I basically treated I was working full-time or part-time with another job at the time but I, I basically treated it like okay so you're behind everyone you don't know anything like how do you catch up right and I basically caught up in a, in a year or two you know I, I ended up with a teacher at University of Toronto Lorna McDonald who like built my voice from scratch 
essentially. And I just, I kind of hit the ground running. Like um, I went to Tanglewood Music Center 2010 and 2011, I think. And I graduated 2011. I hooked up with Mark Morris at Tanglewood. And in 2011, um, which was actually the summer I got married um, in August, uh, we basically had like a debut at Lincoln Center. Like it was totally ridiculous. And then that got me interest from an agent in Toronto. And so I got signed. And then I did my debut with New York City Opera after that. And I was like, I'm on the rise, tenor to watch. And then like literally two months later, they went bankrupt. And I was like, shit. Um, so Aww. I was like, that sucked. And then eventually, you know, I sort of ran out of steam in Toronto where I was working with kind of like all the mid-level groups. But for whatever reason, I couldn't break into the tippy top. Um, partially, I think, because I really like everyone looked at my resume. And they're like, what do you do? Like, who is this person? Like, like they didn't understand. They're like, wait, he doesn't have a master's of music and six years of young artist experience. Like, how does he sing? How does he know how to yeah. sing? crazy so basically i moved to seattle and i would consider that um when my career took off officially that was six years ago and my wife basically i was on contract at new york city opera and my wife was like hey i got a job offer in seattle do you want to leave and i was like let me look at seattle and then i did some google research and then my best friend from high school was living there so i was like okay well i know we have one friend and it looks cool i was like sure let's move so we all moved and uh and then yeah that's that's sort of you know the the short version um, and then, you know, Seattle was just, a, was actually still a pretty fast build. Like I was working with the symphony a year later, um, pretty much all the early music organizations in the Northwest. And another point of privilege is I'm Canadian and American. So I basically, you know, they would do these gigs where it was like Pacific Music Works in Seattle would do a Christmas oratorio and they would be in partnership with early music Vancouver, who was in partnership with some group in Victoria, BC, who was partnered with Portland Baroque. So, but I was basically like, look, I mean, I can just like swap passports. You don't really have to do anything. So, you know, that was it's a huge value in the Northwest to be a dual citizen. So, you know, I worked in Vancouver. I worked, well, I did. I mean, I was going to do an evangelist, the two evangelists, but yeah, anyway, don't, I'm still, I'm still <laughs> emotionally traumatized by the number of evangelists I lost this year. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you know, and, and so I've just moved into like early music in a big way, new music in a big way. You know, I've toured like Mexico, London, China, I mostly work in the U.S. But I've basically, I've, you know, my setup for the last like five years was I would audition or send emails uh, for about, you know, up to about three months of work. And then I would just stop. Oh, and the most important part of this puzzle was five, like four or five years ago in Seattle, my old boss from like way back in the day reached out and was like, oh, man, we're super jammed with the Canadian federal election. Like, can you help out? And then that turned into more and more and more work. And now, so my basic setup now before the apocalypse was pretty great. Like I'm on retainer with, as a senior research manager with this wonderful firm that like respects my work. They gave me like unlimited days to like go sing. Um, and I didn't take advantage of that. You know, I, I felt like three months a year, or four months a year was as much as I wanted to travel away from my wife and now my son. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was a really good setup for me. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk about it. Cause like I did the math and I was like, you know, to make what I'm making now, I would have to basically travel 300 days a year. And like a lot of people don't want to, like a lot of people are introverts in this career and they just like hang out with their friends and like building a family. And like, because I didn't travel 10 months a year for 10 years, like I actually have a really great network of friends and family and like, you know, I know my son and we hang out together all the time. And like, there's a way to do this without burning everything around you except music. And that was kind of why I started the blog. Yeah, I think now more than ever, ever, because of the way that opera companies run and everything, it's more sustainable this way. It's more possible. We don't need like eight great singers. There, there never will yeah. be eight great singers anymore. There just won't, sure. even if it was possible for them to be like, it's just not the way the world is anymore. I don't think for sure. And so more people can do this. And I don't think they know 
that it's possible because no one tells them and then they just think that they failed because yeah exactly their job now right and they don't know how to make both things work so totally it is it is challenging I mean it takes I for a long part of my late 20s and early 30s I was working like crazy hours but you know someone traveling 300 days a year who's learning their next role in a hotel room, like they have to do a lot of work too. Like to get the kind of volume that I would have to do would also be a ton of work. And I frankly kind of like not that interesting to me. Like I don't want to sit in hotel rooms eight months a year and learn roles and like spend, you know, and like have to save my voice on the day of the show. So I don't talk to anyone I, I like, even though I have nothing to do. Like on the day of the show in, in, you know, December, when it's minus 20 out and I'm in Calgary and I have to sit in my hotel room, I can just work for a day and I, and I can get paid. Like that's, that's a really valuable thing to have in your back pocket. So. Right. Well, I mean, and, and kind of what got us starting this podcast period was exactly us figuring out for ourselves exactly what you figured out. Just like, wait a second, <clears throat> there's no way to make this career sustainable just as a singer without burning yourself out. Yeah. And without, and like, you need to have something on the side as a, like, as a financial touch point, yeah. you know, so that you can do music in a way that makes you happy, yeah. not run yourself ragged, but also facing the reality of just like, the industry doesn't pay us enough, even if you worked 300 days a year. No, us. for sure. Like, and, the, and the only counter to my argument of dual career was the A-list singers. And now those are the most affected people because they've put their entire lives into it, 20 years careers. They rely on maybe like four gigs a year, honestly. And if two of those cancel, I mean, it's like a hundred grand. Like it's, it's a wild amount of money. So, you know, that was one of the things that really fascinated me about the beginning of the crisis is like, wow. I mean, like, you know, we're obviously affected, but the people at the top who have put every, their entire lives and you have houses and kids and who you know bring them with them and have I mean obviously they're privileged to be in that position but I mean in a way like in terms of just the scale of the drop overnight I mean they're I think they're the worst hit yeah they're the most at risk right yeah so for everybody including my sake could you take us through that article and what what kind of spurred this realization and like give us the the summary Sure. Um, the, the living wage one? I think the, the COVID-19 one. Oh, the, the big yeah. one? Okay. Here, let me pull that up because, like, it's like a, I mean, I put a trigger warning on that yeah. one. And, and you know, it needs, yeah. I know, I read it in the morning and it ruined my day, but I still- I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. In another right. world, we would be sitting here asking you, you know, well, how did you email these people and how did you get them, yeah. you know, and, but right now I think let's ask you, no, for sure. <laughs> let's go right through the guns. So keep in mind that I wrote this 10 days ago, um, which feels like six years ago. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I basically started off talking about how this is obviously hard to talk about. And this was, this was my like real time processing of the loss of my career, like overnight. I mean, that week I had, um, I mean, I, I think I've lost, I believe it was four months of work, eight contracts and over $13,000, which is not, you sort of like the middle of the pack, I think for what people lost, but for me, you know, and for me, because of my other career, it was okay. It wasn't great, but you know, it was brutal. It, it was, it was really, it was less for me, the financial trauma and the emotional trauma of the people I thought, uh, and even talking about this, I'm going to get emotional, but the people who I thought were in my corner, the people who had hired me for years, who I thought were my friends, who I had their cell phone numbers and we chatted, you know, those people sent me a form letter two days before I got on a plane to my agent saying, oh, uh, sorry, force majeure, buddy, like, can't pay you $4,000, you know, and it's like, 
I had, well, I had, I had daycare, like I had payments, you know, I, everyone has like huge financial responsibilities and the kind of the callous, like borderline sociopathic way that it was being done to people, including myself, you know, made me want to want to really write about this and also warn people because there are a lot like, and, and the other reason I want to write this is I got huge pushback early on, which by the way, no longer happens. I think everyone's kind of figured out what's going on. But I got huge pushback early on from um, especially people working in orchestras who were, you know, quietly shutting down, quote unquote, furloughed, which basically is a fancy way to say like, we can't pay you and we have no funds, but like, we'll get you a job someday, just like wait around by the phone. You know, those people and people who worked in development were like, come on, man, like, don't tell them what's going on. Like, we're trying to raise money right now. Like, like, dude, what the hell? And I'm just like, look, I get your position. Um, I get that publicly, you don't want to talk about it. But the only way through this is to have an honest and sobering account of what was done to us. And it was done to us. It was, we had nothing to do with this. We did our jobs, okay? We showed up, we had, we memorized, we spent months working on repertoire. We bought our own plane tickets. We bought our own hotel rooms. We were ready to go. It was you who failed us. And it's you who are failing the industry, it's not us. So I, this was a shot across the bow to those people who were just sort of quietly sitting in their hidey holes, waiting for it all to blow over. And I was like, this is not gonna blow over, man or woman. I mean, this is, this is, this is a global shit show like we have never seen. And I, my goal was not to scare people like you who are probably going to get to that conclusion, maybe a little later than me, but you'll get there. But it was to the people who were basically like actively providing misinformation. So with that context in mind, so my assessments um, starting off were that one, um, I'll just go through the top, the top points. Um, that we should be prepared. I didn't say we're not we're not going to have, but we should be prepared to go at least 18 months without receiving any income from public performances. So basically what that means is so at the time I was writing this article, I already had multiple confirmations. In fact, some of what I'm about to say may be like breaking on your podcast, but like I, I just haven't had time to write about it. But like I know for sure mostly Mozart Festival in July canceled. Edinburgh Festival August canceled. Like every summer festival is going to be canceled or unless it's some miracle they have, they're just going to burn through a huge amount of cash. And the people that are saying they're going to pay their singers, I'm very grateful for, but that is also going to put them in a huge risk for the next season. So any summer festival right now is going through the exact same thing that the presenters in, in the spring are going through. So the presenters in the spring right now are either, they have, they have multiple choices. They have the advantage of seeing their ticket sales, which are like mostly in, but they basically have the choice to cancel everything, don't pay anybody. Cancel everything, pay some people or pay most people. A lot of people did the first one. Some people have done the second one, mostly small businesses. And the third option is to quote unquote postpone. So what postponing really, postponing is, is quite a, an Orwellian term in this sense, because what postponing means is you're just replacing your next season with this performance. So whatever happens, singers are losing 12 months of income. Right. Boom. And okay. And at the same time, I was getting, I was hearing off the record cancellations as late, and I still am hearing them as late as May 2021. So I know, and I also have been hearing, hearing privately from presenters that they're even wondering if they're going to put their season on. So I'm, I'm like putting all this info together, and I'm not saying it out loud in this article, but I'm saying it out loud, out loud now. Um, but yeah, so I know for sure that like, you know, because of postponement and because of what I was hearing from presenters, um, the next 12 months are in huge jeopardy. And because of that, the people on the summer schedule are basically facing the same thing, right? So like they can, you know, the people at Des Moines Metropolitan, the people at Spoleto, 
Um, so Spoleto is moving their opera to next season. And I'm going to break the story eventually, but you feel free to, to put this on. Um, so Spoleto is, you know, for their opera, they're paying, quote unquote, a $1,000 cancellation fee. And they are um, postponing, quote unquote, um, their opera to next summer. So what that means is if you say yes to that contract, you are accepting $1,000 for the work you put in for the entire summer you blocked this year, and you're blocking next summer, and you have no idea what the, what the globe is going to look like, what the economy is going to look like, what festival. You don't even know if Spoleto Festival is going to exist in 12 months. And I'm sorry, I'm not trying yeah. to speculate about Spoleto, but that's just a fact right now. Like right. half of small businesses have one to two months of operating expenses. And if you think this is going to last one to two months, like, good luck. And, you know, relying on the federal government right now, good luck. Um, we're probably the last in line for that in terms of federal operations. So the final eighth part of the 18 month thing is estimates of a, of a vaccine for 12 to 18 months. And yeah. the other part of this is, you know, because so force majeure, there's this like, I mean, I'm dealing with so many issues right now talking through, but it's all interrelated. So force majeure isn't really the problem. It's the gray area that it creates. So like if an organization, let's say an organization in, in October, um, social distancing happens again. And, you know, like in Seattle, where I was basically strong, you know, forced to go on even during the worst parts of our epidemic, you know, when the CDC said like, consider not having concerts and they're like, oh, okay, well, I'm, I've considered it, um, you know? <laughs> and so what happens in next October when the CDC says again, like consider social distancing because there's like some outbreaks and the governor of Florida is ignoring it. And, you know, you're in Tampa. And it basically gives the organization a carte blanche to say, okay, let's look at our ticket sales. Oof, you know, not looking good. Um, you know, it, we have uh, $5,000 in revenue coming in and we have to go pay our artists hundred grand. Like, hmm, That's well, we, cancel, could, yeah. we could reasonably call a force majeure right now. You know, so it basically gives yeah. all the power to the presenting organizations. And I know that's a very cynical point of view, but what else would you call true, a yeah. festival canceling in August right now? Because right. every indicator, public indicator, which is like not really true, but every every person in public right now is saying, oh, you know, April 30th or like May 1st or like whatever. So based on the public indicators, why is a festival in August canceling? And the only real reason I can think of is ticket sales. Right. Um, and the risk involved. So that's kind of like, I mean, that was a lot of exposition for the first point of like 10. So I don't know how much longer you want me to talk about this. <laughs> no, but that's okay. That's sort of like a basic gist of the main top line of that. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, which leads to, I think, your bigger conclusion in that article in terms of just like, as artists, we need to be proactively thinking about what do we do as a second parallel career? Yeah. It's like, what's, what's the port in the storm? Like, it's like, you just have to accept what's happening and then say, okay, what are my options? So your options are to like, sort of sit around wait by the phone and post like free cello videos um which is like fine for a couple weeks like do your you know do your emotional work um but like when that's all done like what are you going to do because i mean i made my living as a as a concert singer singing as a soloist with orchestras i have two conformed orchestras that i just sang with size with that furloughed everybody so like they can't even pay their orchestra. Like what are they going to come pay four solos 20 grand and put them up in the Hyatt to come out and sing Messiah right now? Like no one is going to be hiring. 
So, you know, in that, if that's true, which I mean, I think it's true, like, what are you going to do? And a, a big problem is, which was actually brought to my attention by Oliver Camacho, the uh, opera podcast uh, or box store, which is really fun. Yes, one too. I love um, that podcast. Yeah, he's awesome. Um, but yeah, he, he kind of brought this angle to my attention, which is like, a lot of our side careers are in the restaurant industry, which is just arguably they're worse off than we are in a lot of ways. Yeah. Right. Um, cause they have to pretend that they're open and they're still burning through all their cash. You know, the hospitality industry, like what's going to happen with Airbnb? What's going to happen with, we know the Hyatt brand or the Sheraton brand, like all these side industries, like, you know, administrative teaching as well. Like a lot of singers say they're like with a, with a university, but really they're contract workers and you know, who is going to be the first to go? Like the tenure track professor has been there for 30 years. Who is making all the decisions? Like, no, it's probably going to be us. Um, in a way it's, it's almost like a contract worker versus employee argument and almost everything we do is contract work. So it's like, find an employee thing and, and find someone who respects you. Like, you know, my wife works for Starbucks, which, you know, not everyone in the singer can, I mean, I've, I've pitched Starbucks to a lot of my singer friends when I'm on tour and I'm like, you gotta try their nitro. Like, you know, I'm like totally on board with Starbucks. And, you know, they, so Marcel here's what's to work for Starbucks. I uh, yeah, did. Like I did. <laughs> Honestly, it was the best part-time work I had as a singer. I mean, I could work 20 hours and get health insurance. Exactly. They were way ahead of the game on that. So anyway, here's what Starbucks did. Okay. And yes, they have money. Yes, they have privilege. But they basically said at the beginning of this, okay, we're going to close all our stores except mobile order because we take this very seriously. We're taking all our chairs up. We're not the third space anymore. But we're, what we're going to do is we're going to pay everybody, everybody. It's not just a corporate. They paid 150,000 workers for a month in the U.S. And they said, look, if you don't feel safe coming in, don't come in. But if you want to just get out of the house and work, come to any store. We'll hire you. And we'll pay you a th- an extra three bucks an hour because you're coming in. But if you don't want to oh come God. in, we'll just pay you what you're, what you're paying. Do you have any idea how much money that is? Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. But I can't, also can't believe hearing this from you that this hasn't been on the news at all. Yeah, they don't. That's they don't, amazing. They didn't, they didn't publicize it at all. It's just what they do. That's what re- I can list a dozen companies like that. That's what businesses do. And like, you know, we give a lot of talk about our mission and how we must support the arts and how it's like a special thing. But you know what? Like everyone I've talked to who is in the fields I talk to, their organizations are like, yeah, we got you. Like it's, I mean, this is, we're going to get through this. Like, it's okay. Like, and it's not, they're not even publicizing it. They're just like, yeah, of course. Like that's right, what right. you're supposed to do. Ethics. And like, <laughs> yeah. And almost a, to a T, every organization, I can't even say a similar size because like Apple has like $200 billion in cash lying around. Like it's just right. not a similar size, but like, you know, you would think someone like the Met, um, like, you know, I'm not going to name any other names because everyone else is going through this process and the Met is just the worst at it. But you'd think that someone with a $308 million operating budget would have a little money lying around for a rainy day, but they don't, you know? Yeah. Well, that's what I was going to say is like with Starbucks and with other businesses, and I've always felt that singers and arts organizations, and I don't know like what you think about this, but they're not, they don't know how to like run businesses well. Like we just don't like, we just like, there are not a lot of great models out there of businesses in the arts that run well, that don't rely on donations all the time. And right. yeah. what can be done about like, they just sim- like in, in the fact like that these small businesses are like, you know, small opera companies are trying to help almost in a way of just like, well, I don't know, we just have this money. So like, let's just give it like, they, yeah. they're just running so small, like, and then these larger companies, like, they also probably have the ability, but 
they're just so like poorly run that they they don't have the ability to understand how they could even fathom doing something like what Starbucks did. Do you know what I mean? It's hard to argue with that. I think there are some very well-run companies like, like for instance, Des Moines Metro Opera. It's like, you know, Iowa isn't like the seat of privilege in America, but you know, they do fine. They're, they have some money. They guaranteed no matter what, like weeks ago, that they're going to pay everyone through the summer, not just the singers, the stagehands, the you know directors, everybody. Cause they're like, yeah, I mean, you guys are the company. It's not, The point of the company is not to hire as many artistic administrators as you can. The point of the company is to present music. And if you can't credibly present music, if you can't present your mandate, maybe that's a bigger issue you need to deal with. Yeah. And I definitely think there's some truth to taking some business practices and applying it more generally to the arts. There is a danger of that because I think one of the one of the great things about the small businesses is they are artists too, and that's one of the reasons. It's sort of like you know where you stand on an issue kind of depends on where you sit. Like if you're the executive director, but you're also the cellist, like you're probably gonna have a different perspective than someone who's been out of school for twenty years and has only been working a list company. So you know yeah. there is a danger to put a bunch of business people in the room. But on the other hand, like the idea of like giving away premium products, um, you know all these like huge business mistakes that no business company would ever make they're just all doing it right now and because they, they're just, they're literally making it up as they go along so it's like yeah. you know there are business case studies of people that have been through crises that have solved it in interesting ways and it's like if we just kind of like put some people in charge of especially the met i mean peter galb is, is one of our biggest problems right now and part of it is he gives cover to smaller companies to treat artists poorly that's he is basically when what he does like every a-list company in america is probably going to adopt so when he doesn't pay his artists or he fires them on social media and they hear about it you know like brushing their teeth from a friend on a text like you know and their whole lives are turned upside down like that kind of behavior really affects a lot of people so um i definitely think it's a crisis in leadership and i also think um you know one of my conclusions moving forward in the article is that a-list companies i'm not gonna i'm not gonna make a prediction on who's gonna survive and who's not but A company with high fixed costs, like labor, you know, I mean, like we're expensive at the top. Like I get it. Um, You know, unions are expensive. I get it. Um, You know, having a house as big as the Met, like 3,300 seats and then desperately trying to fill it every year, like that's probably going to not happen for a while. You know, all these fixed costs, like, you know, a six figure marketing team, like, you know, paying your paying your sound guy $400,000 a year, like those are probably going to not happen for a while. And the companies that are going to do really well are the ones that are able to pay their artists now who are sort of like, you know, investing in their artists capital and who are kind of a bit leaner, like chamber orchestras, string quartets, you know, like, like a small choral ensembles that, that have like big gigs, like seraphic fire that can like sing with the BSO or something, you know, or, um, or Lorelei in Boston, you know, like companies mm-hmm. like that, that really like a are artist driven and B, are flexible enough to withstand something like this. And like, like the fact that the Met needs a $60 million infusion just to make up its losses for this year, can you imagine what $60 million could do to the arts economy in America? There could be a chamber orchestra in a choir in every major city, basically endowed, doing six concerts a year to underprivileged yeah. people, to people who don't have the money to pay 100 bucks a ticket. Um, we need to think really hard about where we're spending our arts dollars. And I think people are starting 
continue to do that. And that's a direct criticism against the sort of kumbaya, like stop attacking arts presenters. We're all in this together because we're not all in this together. And they've shown us that, okay? There are people that have shown us that when, you know, when the lifeboat's there and there's only two life jackets, they're going to take them both. There are people like that. And there are also people who, who are helping out, but like we have to hold those people to account or we're never going to get change. Yeah, right. right. In terms of the like artists that are finding out from the Met through like text message, like you were talking about, like if you could like get provide some insight from whatever information you've gotten, how is that even possible that like, how does that chain of command work? And it seems like from what you're saying that the Met has so many like chains of command that yeah. is being wasted. And that's why we're losing that artist, yeah. artist driven model. I think that's part of it. It's part of a, you know, when you have like seven different arms approaching the public and, you know, and one person has like a total lockdown on, on what should be sent out to artists, like, you know, this was true as of last week, there is at least one Met artist who still has not received any communication from the Met, period. Oh my gosh. Like, just think about that. Like, yeah. like <laughs> I've written like five Met stories since this happened <laughs> and they're literally getting their news about their job from middle class artists. Like, how absurd is that, right? right. Like, and you know, go look at Jamie Barton. I don't want to single her out, but like, go look at Jamie Barton's uh, Twitter. I mean, she posted that she's like, oh, New York Times, thanks for letting me know that I'm fired. Like, I mean, this is, this is public information too. This is not yeah. just like off the record. I not only her. are they, yeah, she's awesome. Um, <laughs> yeah. She's like goals. <laughs> I know, no, super goals for sure. Um, but like, not only are they going to lose their artists because like, no one's going to want to work with them again. I don't care how much money you pay me. Like I'm, and I feel the same. Like if the orchestras that did what they did to me approach me again next season, like I'm going to have to have a serious think about it. And you know, I may have to cash in my privilege to say no because I can say no and to make a stand because like you can't just treat artists like that and then say oh hey you know next season what do you think I mean it's it's so callous the second thing is those artists some of those artists and I'm not even exaggerating are not going to be there next year I mean they're going to be physically present in the world but they are going to be broke they're going to put out second mortgages they have kids they're going to find other jobs and I already have confirmations from literally like a top 20 singer who's like I'm never going through this again. Screw this. I'm out. Wow. Like, and we're never going to hear that person's voice in public at the Met anymore. And that's one of the big tragedies is like, not only are they gutting a generation of singers in terms of firing them, but the long-term consequences is we're losing a generation of singers of the highest level. And there aren't people, I mean, they, you know, some, some artists are like, oh, there's a soprano waiting in the wings. I don't think there's a soprano waiting in the wings for Jamie Barton. Like she is a, not that I'm saying she's quitting, but like, She's an incredible, like once in a generation voice. And if you think right. that you can just put those people in the meat grinder and just like queue up, you know, behind the block behind her, I mean, those voices well, take decades to build. I know. The problem that I hear in, inside my head right now is that, yes, there's no one, there's no one like her, but the Met doesn't fucking care. So the, like the Met's just going to pretend like the quality is going to be the same and yeah. Like, unless singers speak out and unless singers, like, continue to make a fuss about it and continue mm -hmm. to talk about why they're not taking those gigs, other people will will take those places, like, and that's, like, why we're all shouting so yeah, that we can totally. stay together, stick together. And, like, I don't know, not ever shame anybody for taking a gig, but, like, because you're, like, you're saying, like, use your privilege card to not take something because exactly. you can. Right. Um, but... 
everybody needs to know and look for the alternatives, look for the good companies, shout them out and, totally. and be an advocate for yourself. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Respect yourself because they're not respecting you right now. Well, and it's like, and I've, I've always said this, it's like, you know, the, the, the powers that be are just like, oh, opera's dying. What can we do about it? And I've always <laughs> said, my position has always been, we're not doing enough to champion the singers. Because, yeah. You know, especially in a world that just like, there are droves of people who will go see a movie no matter what it's about because Hugh Jackman is in it. No, for sure. Opera needs to operate the same way because yeah. honestly, the storytelling is, is in the hands of the individual artists. Yeah. And, and it is, we've, we've given, we've given away so much of our power over the years um, in so many ways. You know, we, we're basically at the mercy of arts presenters for a, our fans. Like if I, if, so let's say I've been to Messiah, I've, you know, I've done over 15 performances of Messiah and I've been to Messiah's where my name isn't published. I can't meet the audience afterward for whatever reason, because we're going directly somewhere else. I don't have any contact with them. I can't sell them my music. I've made a CD and I've got another one on the way. Like I can't, I can't give them something when they leave to say, thank you. You know, like everything I would do if I was presenting, I can't do. So, you know, at the end of the day, they, they're the ones with the giant listserv. They're the ones with the donor lists. They're the ones who know who's been in the concert and who hasn't. And it's in, in a way, I mean, this is my like bias towards data, but like we've ceded control of all the data that we have. And in this industry, data is power. Like hiding what you pay your artists that's power, you know, like hi mm -hmm. hiding who can you can get money from like that's power taking that back is like a big part of this like we we, we can't just like leave everything to if you know if we have the privilege of having an agent leave it to them and the presenters sort of hammer things out and and it's just a real incentives problem too because like you know our the people working for us they're not necessarily trying to get you hired they're trying to get someone hired or multiple people hired and they have a direct relationship with the presenter. So, you know, if I go to a Messiah, as I said, for like four solos, 20 grand, and they ask for a quartet and they say, can you do it for 15 grand for the four of them? Is that agent going to push back and say, I'm going to walk? Like, I don't know, like maybe. Um, but like, would I push back if I was my agent? You're goddamn right. I would. I'd walk away. So yeah, like, right. you know, we have to be our own advocates and we have to have, we have to get control of our data. Um, we have to like build our own contact networks. And we've already kind of done that with like what's happening in the singer community right now. And it's like one of the reasons I'm able to post so many things on middle-class artists is because like people just trust me now and they just talk to me and they just send me stuff, you know, to the point where I'm like a source for like the Washington Post or something, you know, like, like people, who, people who are gatekeepers are missing all of this right now, like everything that's going on. So, you know, and do like what we're doing right now is really going to have a major impact. We just have to keep doing it basically. Hey guys, we are so happy to have the Sparkle Twins as our sponsor for this season of My So-Called Opera Life. If you are looking for a mouth mask these days so you can leave your house to stock up on food or maybe coffee and wine like me, support these artists in the process by ordering one of their mouth masks made especially with singers and performers in mind. To order yours, visit www.sopranotwins.com shop. Are you at home needing some motivation to practice, like me? Singing Straw is the first reusable and customizable straw phonation tool for singers, speakers, and vocalists that promotes vocal efficiency and reduces tension. Make yourself feel productive and support us today by ordering a Singing Straw and start brushing up on that aria you've been putting off forever. Go to singingstraw.com and use the code MYSOCALLEDOPERALIFE10, the number 10, to get 10% off of your purchase. You're welcome. 
Speaking of supporting artists, here are three ways you can support the movement of artists supporting artists. First, share our podcast with others. Second, rate and review our podcast. And lastly, sign up for our Patreon. Find out more at patreon.com slash my so-called opera life. Thanks for listening. Um, the practices of art for companies in terms of application fees, which this is an example of like a way that mm. there you said that there's no like real financial gain from the company like can you you explain it because you're smarter than me <laughs> sure okay yeah. oh no that's come on i just spent 100 hours looking at 990s that's the only difference yeah so okay let me think back okay so it was for an article i wrote called young artists big business available on middleclassartists.com and yeah so i just went through every single agma contract and i went through every single 990 i could find for a fifth which is a tax thing for 50 companies and I talked to a lot of people and I sort of came to the conclusion that like a lot of these organizations pay like huge executive fees, um, some over like, an, well, more than one over a million a year. And, you know, they have huge amounts of assets or at least uh, revenue and they charge these application fees that are like pennies on the dollar of their total revenue, you know, like a $20.5 application fee for a, yeah. for a uh, company that has a $400 million, you know, <laughs> it's like, all right cool. And, you know, that company might only pay like six bucks an hour for a young artist. And, and none of this data is publicly available, by the way. I mean, well, some of it is on the financials, but like what artists make, yeah. like, I mean, I had to like pull it out of them, like a sponge. Like it was just right. like, they're like, wow. okay, but like my name can't be there. Right. Like, it's okay. Right. Like, like young artists are so scared of the people they work for. Like, I mean, like I get it. Like you're, you're lower in the company, but like, you know, someone who is, you know, a, a, a first year analyst at like Microsoft or something, they're not talking like this. Like, they're, I mean, sure yeah. they want to do a good job, but like, we are terrified of the people we're working for. I know. And just to clarify, when you talk about young artists, you're talking about people that are like studio artists at Wolf Trap or like something like that. Yeah. Some, okay. Yeah. Like there's, there's sometimes there's two tiers. Sometimes there's like the, you know. Right. The, right. But those, yeah, those exactly. tiers. Well, I mean, it's just another symptom of the fact that like they have they they have us all hoodwinked into this permission based model. Totally. Right. And it's just like, wait a second. I'm the one fucking singing. <laughs> yeah. No, they've, they've been, Why yeah. am I asking you for permission <laughs> to do the thing that I do better than other people? Yeah. Well, but didn't Pavarotti go to like Wolf Trap and Des Moines Metro Opera and spend six summers there? I thought he did anyway. Um, right. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, they've created this model and it's all about, it's all about control and it's all about power where they've created a funnel that we all, that many people have to go through and there is a punishment for not going through it. Um, so I didn't go through it, but, um, I also have a different type of voice. Like I'm, I'm kind of like, it's a little lighter and more flexible and like concert music was really easy to get into because no one cares about this in concert music. Right. Like I work, right. like I just email a symphony director or like, a, or like an artistic director who knows everyone I've worked. I'm like, I've worked with everyone you've ever worked with, like check out my voice. And they're like, Oh, this is great. Yeah. Well, I'm doing an evangelist. You want to do it? And they're like, yeah, sure. You know, like obviously tenor privilege, I know, but um, you know, right. I used to send out like right. 40 that's emails true. of that a year and that's what I did. Right. Yeah. And I never did, I never did any of these. I did, you know, well, I did like Tanglewood. I did like Banff summer opera. I did like Britain Piers. I did, I did a lot of the song ones and like one, you know, Banff is, was technically an opera one, but it was more of a, just kind of a band camp. And I didn't do any of the, you know, you know, I actually got like the letter I got from Glimmerglass where I was like, okay, I'm going to stop applying to these. They were like, 
please don't ever apply the glimmer class ever again. You suck. <laughs> that was I know, I saw that. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that on the I saw that on one of the groups and I was like, thank right. you for sharing that. <laughs> yeah. And like I've you know, up until my postmortem career, I've been singing basically full time for nine years. So it's like, you know, someone's wrong. Um, maybe right. it wasn't me. So, you know, it, it just, it doesn't allow artists, I mean, it's an incredible value. The people that are, the, the people all who are the stars of these programs, who win the Met competition, who win, you know, Singer of the World competition, like those people, at least up until recently, did very well out of this because they got the majority of the spotlight, they got, the, you know, they got the coachings, they got the personal relationships, they got the gatekeepers. And then there's like probably most of the other people doesn't do anything for them. You know, they just, they go. And that's like, yeah. How many people? That's, that's. Tons. Yeah. Right. The tons of people that doesn't do anything for and then like 20 people. That yeah. Does. And, and you know, like actually like 20, I think. Exactly. Right? <laughs> and it, instead of saying, instead of saying, you know, Oh, go make your own opportunity. Like go start a new music ensemble. But it's like new music, <laughs> you know, and like, <laughs> You know, like go do like go do something that you're actually better at because that that's basically what I I applied I for the first two years of out of my artist diploma I was like oh I guess this is how I do spent thousands of dollars dozens of you know auditions in New York lots of like promising young tenor notes but like not a lot of hits you know I got into Ravinia and I turned them down because I was doing Vamp and then they turned me down and it's like okay great whatever you know wow. Um, that's wow yeah <laughs> that's like clear. That's- yeah <laughs> that's clearly not the way forward i mean like yeah. really you're gonna get 20 people hired and then you're gonna fire all those people and they're gonna lose all their jobs and they're never gonna work again like what kind of business model is that so you know i think the young artist programs are gonna have to make a lot of changes and i think people are gonna realize based on this solidarity model that we're building that it's not the only way and because um small and flexible organizations i think are going to have the advantage in in post-covid like i don't think the med is going to have the advantage by having to spend 200 million dollars a year on like rose petals on their ring set like that's not going to help them um that's going to hurt them i don't know these ideas that they come up with are totally crazy yeah i have no idea why who says it's a good idea it's like they're in like they're the queen in um alice in wonderland yeah that's that's actually a pretty pretty apt analogy yeah Yeah. (laughs) um but so, so just to, I want to make this so clear for everyone that like, basically if we decide not to pay, not to pay artist, young artists fees to apply for something, opera companies are not going to, they're just going to have to deal with it. They're not going to be suffering financially because of it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's built into the Yap Tracker thing, which is a whole other thing, but you know. They like to pretend that they'll be financially impacted yeah. by application fees i've had multiple arts administrators say to me oh well we need that money to fund our trips to new york and uh-huh, i uh-huh. looking what? at their finances they and you're do, like yeah. wait a second really does the does that like 35 dollars 35 you make <laughs> yeah. off of application fees is actually a drop in the bucket and that's i've never even made that much in a year yeah personally um and i did only look at a lot of the big ones like it's entirely possible that the smaller ones are a little more dependent on it but there aren't really any small ones in this model like the young artist program is built on where the this is the major leagues and you're the farm team that's kind of the model so there aren't there isn't like a minor leagues farm team really and if there was i mean there are but they're mostly pay to sings and i don't i I mean i'm not going to touch that pay to sings with a 10 foot yeah and i mean you basically in the article show that it's really just become an arbitrary number that people just pay because it's what everyone else is charging. So even the small companies, 
if they are building that into their budget, then they're doing so because they've been given permission by other companies who are doing it too. Right. Exactly. exactly. And in some in some ways, I almost think they think it makes them credible. Yeah, yeah, because I mean, only the only the top dogs oh, don't. Oh, oh, we are, yeah. yeah. It's like, well, we're gonna do that too because yeah. that's what the professionals do. Right, yep. Right. But, yeah. but then, like, amazingly, you know, ironically, the smaller companies who are doing really good work are the ones that aren't charging application fees, you know, and they're still hearing yeah. as many singers as they can and putting totally. out quality operas, and they're not charging us to apply. Yeah. Absolutely. There's, I'm trying to think, I think one of them doesn't charge, I think maybe Opera Theater St. Louis or Des Moines, one of them doesn't charge. Yeah. OTSL, um, OTSL doesn't charge. Um, yeah. And I don't think Santa Fe charges. OTSL does not let you send audio. They just look at your resume. <laughs> oh, fair enough. Different gatekeeper model. Yeah. yeah. Different. Sure. Yeah. Different. Yeah, exactly. So if I ask you an opinion of how opera companies could revamp their model to me a better business yeah what do you think what oh man thoughts? put me in the, put me at the wheel i would i would big things. okay first of all i mean this is i mean i'm channeling my inner bernie sanders here but um i would i would do a major rethinking of how we pay our administrators um the idea that we're that you know as me the top dog I'm making, you know, a million, million, five, two million. We can barely balance a budget right now. We're paying our singers, you know, 15 bucks an hour, like at the young artist program level, like that's going to change. So the first thing I would change would be basically like equalization payments (laughs) based on status. So I would, I would set all young artists, starting at the bottom, all young artists would make a minimum magma fee per week. And I think that's something like a thousand bucks a week. So for, you know, for a summer program, that's a reasonable fee. You know, if it's a 10 week program, like you're not gonna have a huge, it, it basically allows non-privileged people to attend young artist programs because what- Right, so you can still pay your rent. Yeah, attend, you know, I attended Tanglewood. It was, it was the time of my life, I loved it. But it was 11 weeks where I didn't make any money in the middle of summer and I was 24. So like the idea that you can be 24 and not make any money for a third of the year or 25% of the year, that's a huge, huge point of privilege. So already, you know, dealing with like the, the kind of hoity-toity image of opera and getting rid of all the points of privilege and having equal access, a big part of that starts at the bottom. So I first, I would basically pay all young artists a living wage. That would, that's how it would start. Then I would work with the unions to somehow like, I okay, full disclosure, I am on the board of government agma so i have some voice but not much um but i kind of know how the sausage get made and you know they do a very they try hard and they they're doing good work but it just takes a long time and people get frustrated that's basically the top line um but i would try and work with the unions for some flexibility and this is probably going to get me murdered but um you know the met well like first of all i'm i mean i haven't even gotten to the met's operating costs yet so we'll get to that but like the Met has like an untenable amount of labor costs. Um, and part of that is um, the repertoire they pick too. So I don't think moving forward, we'll be able to present things like the ring um, as often because of the amount of risk involved. So it's kind of like the big Hollywood producer model versus like the, a lot of small indie films. And like, you know, you know, like the, the Blair Witch Project, which was like a hundred million dollar hit or something. Like the idea, like putting everything into Pirates of the Caribbean every year, that's basically the ring. Right. So, you know, I love the, I mean, it's an amazing piece of music and everybody loves it, but it's can, li- it's literally could bankrupt 
multiple companies in America right now. Right. Is that enough risk to present that? Like, I don't know. I would, I would start with the big ticket, like, you know, 50, 100 million productions that are going on and be like, okay, we're not going to do these for like five years. Okay. We're going to start from scratch. Um, I would get out of the big halls. Like part of the pitfalls is, you know, we're forced to try and fill these absurdly large halls, like 3,300 seats. Only a handful of operas can do that, which is why you keep seeing Carmen, Aida, Madame Butterfly, the same stuff over and over and over again. It reduces the ability to innovate. So I would basically have a 2,000 seat hall and a 600 seat hall. And I'd have the 600 seat hall do new music and recital work. And I'd have the 2,000 seat hall do the top 10. Um, that's how, that's kind of how I would revise how opera is doing. And all the companies that are doing well basically have that model. I'm not like innovating here. Um, maybe they don't pay their artists yet, but they, you know, that's a point of problem. But um, so a lot of these companies are doing it very smartly, but yeah, so I would start there. And then, I mean, I would hack and slash the administrative budget. I'm sorry. I know I have friends in those jobs, but we are not in a position where we can pay six figures for an administrator job for a long time. We need to start over from scratch. And I don't think people realize that yet. Um, we need to start from scratch on our programming, the size of our halls, the size of our companies. Everything's going to be leaner um, because we're going to have problems generating ticket sales, getting people. I mean, are how comfortable do you guys feel? Do y'all feel going into a concert hall with a bunch of coughing people over the age of 60 right now? Not at all. <laughs> yeah. Neither will they. So like, it's going to take some time to get to over the psychological trauma of COVID. Right. And also just the idea of like social behavior is very sticky. So like everyone's watching Tiger King right now. Like that's pretty fun. Like, you know, sitting around eating takeout with your friends, having a glass of wine, like that's a pretty good way to spend the evening. If that's all you do for the next, the next six months, you know, there are going to be some people who get a little stir crazy, but like behaviors change permanently. Think of all the people. I mean, I don't know if you've ever met someone who's been through the great depression or like a major global event. Yes. But like, those people are like saving buttons in their you know drawers and like people who survived major wars like they are permanently changed so like this is in in terms of a global event this is like on par with something like that so right. that's that's kind of how i would start i would just have to slack basically yeah <laughs> right i mean society societally there's there's you know it's it's a trauma that's gonna that's affecting all of us so yeah it's of course it's gonna change social behavior um i think my question that I have in the midst of all of this is just like speaking more directly to our audience. Yeah. Because, you know, okay, we very clearly laid out like, here are all the problems. Yeah. <laughs> and like, if you are a singer and you are not seeing this for what it is, like, please listen very carefully to everything Zach has just said. <laughs> um, because like, you need to take the rose colored glasses off so that you can protect yourself. Um, and, you know, to that point, then like, what do you think? that we can do as singers to kind of protect ourselves going forward and like what kinds of models should we be pushing for in the stuff that we're doing that we can continue to do for now? I think the best thing you can do is continue. I don't use the word network because it feels icky, but like there is a major conversation going on right now and you need to be a part of that period. Beyond social media, I know it's like social media, I'm not the biggest fan of Facebook, but like I spend all my time on Facebook right now because that's where everybody's talking. That's where I get a hundred private messages a day from people telling me terrible things about the Met. Um, that's where everything's going on. So be part of the conversation. I know you're going through a lot. We're all going through a lot. And I know we're all processing at different levels, but you have to talk about it and you have to, you have to connect with other people because when this is over, like 
I'm going to hire the people I've connected with. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to hire people like Sarah Braley and I'm going to hire my friends because I, because I have another career. Like I'm going to be making albums very soon again, next year. I've already started reaching out to composers to commission works. Like I'm still in this business. Talk to me, you know, like talk to the people who are going to survive. Um, Cause we're going to the one we're going to, you know, I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but like the people who are making a difference right now are the people who are going to lead us out of this. And like, if you're not part of that conversation, like you've missed a huge thing. So be part of the conversation first off as, as healthfully as you can vis-a-vis your own mental health, because things are going to get really tricky for a while that way. Um, second is keep up your, keep up your music skill set. So I am going to have some words to say about people posting free content all the time. Um, I'm certainly guilty of that with middle-class artists, although I have added a donation button due to some arm twisting because I want to hire a bunch of writers. And so, you know, um, maybe practice a little less than you used to, but like, you should be ready to go. Right. Don't right. take six months off and like eat a tub of ice cream every day. Do that for like a couple of weeks. And then like, yeah. you kind of have to get back to your training because this is going to take a while, but like when it comes back, everyone's going to want to hear you. So like, be ready for that. But that being said, as I said, in my article, it could be a while. Like it could be like, I don't anticipate I think it's going to take me about five years to get back to a, to the schedule I had. And I think it's going to take me about nine months, plus or minus a couple of gigs that are really trying to signal to me that they're going to happen, even though I'm like, okay, um, <laughs> you know, I'm like, all right, yeah, sure, fine. Anything where I don't get on a plane, <laughs> yeah, any gig where I'm not getting on a plane, I'm like, all right, this, there's like 20% chance this could happen. Everything I'm getting on a plane, I'm like, no, this is going to happen. So, you know, and um, the second point is, um, you know, focusing on music. Music is going to be local and regional for a long time. The, the model, as I said, of flying four solos in, you know, to a symphony that can't pay their rent right now is basically over for a while. So um, reach out to your local presenters because they're going through some shit too. Like all my local right. presenters, I mean, I'm trading like thousand word emails with all these people. This is like going through the trauma with them because they're also hurting because they're also musicians. So like keep in touch with your local community, your regional community, check in with them, make sure they're okay. Like, you know, build that, as I said, build those relationships because those are the relationships that are going to lead us out of this. Mm-hmm. So that's all the like music advice you can do right now. I think, you know, there's like the budget stuff, like, you know, trying not to spend too much or whatever. But um, in terms of like a way forward financially, I really do think that everyone needs to have a second set of skills and the sooner it doesn't have to be tech, although I'm like hugely tech biased because of my skill set. And the fact that it's helped me so much process this information so quickly, but everyone has to kind of have a second thing. And I've kind of said that for a while, but now it's really true. Like everyone, like, uh, you know, people singing at the Met have to have a second thing. So like, do you want to start that second thing nine months from now when your gig gets canceled? Or do you want to have basically a job offer in hand nine months ago from now when your gig gets canceled? So that those are like the different strategies. And there is kind of a pushback online right now of like, you know, you don't have to be productive, like, you know, just process and like, you do you. And like, I totally get that. And I was there like three weeks ago, but that time is basically done because you have to make some money. Like that's, I'm sorry, that's just the truth. And Zoom lessons aren't going to be there forever because the people you're teaching aren't going to have money in like three months. So it's like, you have to figure something out. And there's like, like there's a hundred thousand jobs open at Amazon right now. Walmart is hiring 150,000 people. Like the big companies are making big bets right now. And those bets are going to make a huge payoff down the road when they come back. So, you know, they're not great jobs right now, but you could be training, you know, when my, when my company reached out to me five years ago to, to do work, I was like, totally, I'm the best analyst. You're going to have a great time. 
And I was like, I don't remember anything. (laughs) 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 I literally didn't remember how to do anything. So I just, I went through like literally all of Khan Academy in two months, which is a free resource, all math and statistics. I took two online community courses um, from my local college, which I believe they're still teaching right now. And I took a bunch of edX courses and the total bill was $500. And I spent about three months doing like a Rocky montage. And then I came in and I freaking rocked it. So like, you know, like if you're telling me that a coach who can play two clefs at once and sing in German isn't, doesn't have another skill set, like give me a break. Right, you're right. you're going to be better right. at this six months from now than I am. Like you yeah, are, right. you're able to process information on an incredible scale. You just don't really know it. So Right. Um, right. You can see, you can see patterns. Yep. And so that's going to transfer into, into data work very easily. Exactly. Right. I think that the takeaway is like, just explore. Let's like singers need to explore what they would like to do, what other options are. They, I think that they've always needed to do that. Yep. We've been saying on the podcast from since day one, yep. Right. I've gone into voiceover, which is not like a, a job where I'm going to get a full-time, you know, with benefits thing, but I don't need benefits because of my partner. So totally. that works for me. Um, and other things work for other people. And, and it's not something you have to be, ups- it could be exciting. It can be. It could. And like, it's fun that like, like I have a buddy who is the, he's the lead graphic designer on Half-Life Alex. Like it's the biggest VR game to ever come out. And he's wow. like literally building worlds. And he has, he has benefits and a great salary and he loves his job. And, you know, would he also love being like an artist in a gallery in New York right now? Like maybe, but like, he also has a lot of fun every day. And it's like, there are a lot of different ways to do art in your own way. And it doesn't mean like writing copy for like cigarette companies. Like there are companies out there that do, re- like, as I said, Starbucks, you know, there, um, I know that Lululemon paid all their workers um, for a month at least. And like, like there are companies that really care about their employees. And I don't think singers remember what it was like to have an employee that cared. <laughs> like yeah. it really makes a difference. I mean, as an example, my consulting boss um, in Toronto, like I basically told him everything that happened. I was like, my music career imploded. Like I'm going through deep mental trauma right now. Like I'm a little distracted. You know, the minute I sent that email, the head of HR called me, every VP called me and my CEO called me. And they're all like, dude, we work for like electricity companies in Canada that literally keep the lights on. Like, don't worry about it. You know, like, they were there for me in a way that no other, no other presenter was. And they, I'm, I'm a contractor for them. Like, you know, so there are people that really care and who know what's going on and, you know, like just find those people in, in a career that makes sense. And like, you definitely have more than one thing. I mean, you started this podcast from scratch. You have like major audio design and technology skills that I don't have. And you learn that kind of overnight just for fun. Imagine the imagine the uh, the motivation when you have to make money. Like, <laughs> right. I know, I know, <laughs> I know. I always have to tell myself that I have to keep continue focusing on money. I get. I don't know if it's like a personality of singer disorder where like you just want to like do stuff and then you're like, yeah, oh yeah, oh, money. Sure. Oh. Fuck, yeah. Money. <laughs> right? <laughs> but see, I've, I'm very business minded just because like my dad is an entrepreneur. He always run, ran his own company. And like, I run into the opposite problem where I want to try mm-hmm. to monetize every hobby. Oh I yeah. Have. yeah. Totally. And then I'm just like, I have too many things that I'm yep. trying to make money off of. And it's like, no, no, no. Like find the ones that you're really good at and leverage yep. those. <laughs> no, for sure. I totally get it. All my friends are like, dude, you got to monetize it. Google ads, the blog, like everything. I'm like, all right, hold on, hold on. Give me a break. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I, I totally get it. Like, you know, and we, we all have to find that balance, right? Like, I mean, 
we there's this the perception of the arts that like oh we're all in it for the love of it and like we are but we're also in it to be like you know to present something beautiful to the world and not be disrespected and and like thrown out to the curb you know like we want to we want to present something with respect that we care about and have people respect us back. So, so just like definitely find those people. And, and that would, that would definitely be my advice. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, and from a, just from a business standpoint, it's just like when we say that thing, it's like, Oh, well, we get into this for the love of it and the beauty of the art and that kind of thing. And it's just like, yeah, but you also have to respect that. Like you've done a lot of work to do what you do and not anyone else can do what you do. Are you telling me that the CEO of, of Google doesn't feel proud yeah, of the thing that he does. I mean, he gets paid very well for what he does. And it's not art. But yeah. like, you have to respect yourself well enough to be like, I have what I do has value. It has Completely. intrinsic value. And that doesn't mean that you're selling out. Yeah, exactly. There, There is like, I feel like we do have a strong nonprofit bias where it's like, if you're not making any money, you're doing something good. Well, right. Look at where we are right now. That's not We're- how the Catholic Church feels. Ooh, <laughs> <laughs> ooh, just got hot in here. Um, yeah, I mean, like, look at where we are right now. We're on a Zoom call. Zoom right. is a company; they make money. Zoom has saved lives right now. The, the, yeah. What they're doing, I mean, by providing the most secure, whatever, not secure, but most like you know, <laughs> audio-friendly service. You know, people are able to teach from their homes when they're quarantined. That's literally saving lives right now. So like just thinking about it in a different way where it's like making money is not a bad thing. It's a byproduct of producing something that people like. So like it's okay for an opera company to make money. They don't have to spend every single dollar they make every year. I mean, maybe they do. I don't know how nonprofits really work. But like Yeah, I mean like if you have a hundred dollar if you have a hundred million dollar endowment like the Kennedy Center, you don't have to spend $120 million every year. Like you could spend twenty, you know? And then just, you know, save some (laughs) or pay artists more, like, you know. Pay artists more. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Do you have any thoughts on, on like live streaming? So I agree with you about about the content, about the free content and all the videos. Like, I think it's great, but it also like, I just... Yeah, um, it's my next. But what about live streaming? Like, what about live streaming? And what about what about opportunities for singers to use singing, yeah. even in this time, to still make money on their yeah. maybe on their own or with our network? Right. No, absolutely. This. So I'm running my next piece on that, and um, I'm basically my the thesis is like, okay, so say you are a struggling restaurant business. It's not really hard to imagine right now because literally every restaurant business is struggling. Now imagine you put out a sign that said free $50 bottle of wine, come in and buy a, buy a $10 burger, you know, if you, if you could, you know, maybe, but here, here's some free wine. So everyone, everyone takes wine. Cause they're like, wow, free wine. This is such a great product. Like amazing. And then the owner is like, don't forget in six months to come back and buy a sandwich. That's basically the Mets business model right now, where they're giving away the most premium product, like the golden goose. I mean, the Met HD makes $16 million a year at least. It's over 20% of their revenue and they're giving it away and they're not paying artists anything. So right, that's what I was going to say. There's no broadcast fee for their artists, yeah. which is ridiculous. I know. And there's so many ways to do it. Like, like, again, look to businesses who are succeeding. Like, 
who is really crushing it right now? It's people with recurring revenue, people like Netflix on subscription models, people who bundle things together. Like, um, you know, if you have your, your cable and like your TV or, you know, those types of products. So I'm just, I'm literally just making this up. I am not an arts minister and I have no experience. <laughs> I'm coming with the ideas that could like help, you know, right. like just do a brainstorm. Come on guys. So like, you know, let's say the Met wants to put 21 operas for free on their website and, and get a hundred million minutes of exciting, like everyone's watching and it's so exciting according to Peter Gelb, who is like, none, nobody's making money off this. So, you know, instead of giving away literally the only product that can make you money that for you the have, foreseeable yeah. future, that's it. That's all they have. You know, just like the wine business for a restaurant where it's like, that's your only high margin business. You know, instead of doing that, say, okay, we're going to go on a weekly model, you know, Monday through Friday, we're going to brought, we're going to stream, uh, you know, Monday, we're going to stream chamber music. Tuesday, we're going to stream a piano. Th Wednesday, we're going to do a string quartet. Thursday, blah, blah, blah. Friday, masterclass. Saturday, we're going to stream an opera. And like every week you pay us 20 bucks. And, you know, if you get a monthly subscription for, you know, 50 bucks, we'll throw in an opera ticket for next season. You know, like recurring revenue bundles, adding value, and basically just trying to make some money on the thing that you can make money on right now, because that's literally it. Like the Met can't, the only thing the Met can do is send pleading emails to donors pray that our current government is going to bail them out, which they might. Um, they bailed out the Kennedy Center, sort of, although they're still going to probably be in trouble. Um, right. And like, sell your product. You've got a product, go sell it, you know? Right, right. Well, I mean, and I think it's, I think it's terrifically short-sighted to be still like asking donors because in terms of like the stock markets and stuff, like I know. it's the, it's the one percenters who have been your donors forever, who are going to be the most financially impacted by this. Yeah. On, know, a, on a like, dollar scale. Yeah. We're, we're at the, we're farther down on the trickle down scale of that. It's like, we won't get hired of course, but like donors are not going to be handing out money no. for endowments and stuff next year. They won't. Everyone is going to go inward. Everyone's going to go local um, and regional. And, you know, if your if your son's baseball game is canceled because the umpires are all sick and if you're, you know, if you're a family member or a family friend gets COVID, it doesn't have access to healthcare because we're out of supplies. Like there's going to be so many different issues conflicting donors that like we can't rely on someone just handing us a million dollar check every year. Like we got to go out and make some, we got to go out and like hustle. Yeah. They've been relying on that though for how many years now? Like right forever yeah right yeah so i mean it's gonna i don't know but i agree I mean, it's, it's gonna right have to change. i mean we'll see Probably. we'll see i don't know i'm always surprised how many fucking donors there are i'm like what the actual fuck <laughs> well we can help change it right right Right. No, and I, not to say that I'm ungrateful for donors. No, no, yeah, donate, no. I just but like, crazy. I think the the blind reliance on their donor base um, of these large organizations is really yeah. short-sighted. I think I it's know. Just very short-sighted. And like, not to bring it back to like tech and everything, but like, talk about like the most obvious partnership in the world. Like, why doesn't the Met reach out to Zoom and like have like a global partnership with a technology company to bring Renee Fleming voice lessons everywhere to bring, you know, just like they right. could be like Rolex has, you know, uh, the super famous conductors and their ads in the New Yorker with the watches. Like the Met could be their premier yeah. brand like, that gets you really, zoomed into the cultural do you really space. Think the Met's ever, ever, ever going to do that ever. No, I no, I don't. I mean, I don't think so, no. but like, I right. mean, but we if can. I had, this is sort of, I know these are like, <laughs> I know it's, it was, it's pretty amazing. And I just hope that, you know, we have some changes in leadership and that's all I'm going to say about yeah. that. Right. <laughs>
Well, I think we have covered like so much great stuff. This is going to be a very dense episode for our listeners, Yay. I think. Um, <laughs> thank, thank you so much. So, it was so much fun, actually. With us. Yeah, it was super Numbers, fun. Anytime you, you want to you talk about the world burning down. <laughs> so where can um, we all look you up? We got the middleclassartist.com, right? Yeah, middleclassartist.com. And then my website for all the gigs I have coming up womp womp, is um, zachfinkelstein.com, Z-A-C-H-F-I-N-K-E-L-S-T-E-I-N. Um, and yeah, I'm on Twitter. I'm, I'm ranting a lot more on Twitter now because that's apparently where all the journalists are. And I'm on Facebook. If you want to friend me, I'm basically friending anyone I have like 10 friends in common with at this point. So, um, you know, if you want to start a chat, send me a PM. Okay, great. Thank you Sounds so good. much. It was yeah, so fun. Thank you. For sure. Take care, y'all. You too. All right, you too. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. So Zach already mentioned where we can find him um, on all the internets. Yep, we will link all of that in the show notes. Thank you guys for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Um, if you have any comments for us, you can email us at info at my so-called opera life. Um, and, you know, certainly we send all of our best wishes out to all of us who are, we're all affected by COVID at this point, but anyone who's, um, you know, directly affected by it, we're, we're thinking of you. And if there's anything we can do to help, please reach out. Find us on Facebook, my so-called opera life, Instagram at my so-called opera life, and let us know your stories. Hashtag my so-called opera life. Yay. Bye guys. Bye.